You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to season two, episode 14. This is Casey. I'm here with Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi. And we are so excited. We have a very special guest with us here today who's going to be addressing some questions, providing some insight about educational diagnosticians and testing with dyslexia. So we're really excited about that. Before we get into our guest, we are going to go over some feedback here. We always love feedback that we get from our listeners. We're so appreciative of that. So feel free to leave your reviews and you may have them read out loud. So this is from L.Y. Young and it says, always learn something new. As an Orton-Gillingham practitioner who works outside the classroom, I am always listening to your podcast as I am driving to school from school to school. I am always astounded by the wealth of information that you have to share. I was most inspired by your recent podcast. I had not thought about encouraging my students to become advocates for themselves, but your podcast inspired me to do so. Dyslexia is so individualized and complex. It is so helpful to be able to listen and then re-listen to your podcast episodes. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that feedback, L.Y. Young. And I really think that that is going to be a beautiful springboard into our conversation today with our guest. I'm going to hand it over to Emily to introduce our guest. All right. Thanks, Casey. So we are super excited because we have a wonderful guest speaker for you today on the Together in Literacy podcast. And we have uh, Katie Vassar. And Katie Vassar is a dyslexia and reading consultant. She is a licensed dyslexia therapist and qualified instructor of therapists and an educational diagnostician. Katie has over 20 years of experience in the field of education. Her history includes roles in both special education, general education, reading dyslexia intervention, and coaching at the elementary and secondary levels in both public and independent school systems. Katie is currently training various teams with various centers, and she trains teachers as dyslexia therapists. She trains educators to work with students with dyslexia in the classroom. She provides psychoeducational evaluations, which is what we'll be asking her to share more about today, and supporting individual students and families as they navigate the world of dyslexia. Katie also contracts with schools, districts, and other state and local organizations to provide consultation services and professional development. And she is so passionate about supporting the learning needs of all students as they navigate their journey toward being successful, lifelong learners. Katie, 
welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Emily, Casey. It's so great to be here on the Together in Literacy podcast, sharing what I know um, with your listeners. Yeah, so we have some questions today that we're going to get into with all of you, and we are coming at it from a perspective that will hopefully provide insight, not only for our families, but also for educators. So you'll notice that the questions that we ask, Katie, will be geared towards both um, groups here and hopefully give you some insights in how you can be able, be able to help your own child or as you're planning for services in the classroom setting. So Katie, tell us, how did you get into studying in, in the field of dyslexia and what led you to this area of expertise? Well, that is a really good question. It actually was accidental, but meant to be. So through all of my undergrad work, I was going through special education as my bachelor's and was focused on autism and behavior. And that was really the route that I was working on with students in my practicum settings. And then when I graduated, I was looking for a job and it was hard to find a job at that time in our school district area. And I ended up being a first grade teacher, which I loved, but it was very different from the special education role that I was had been preparing for. And through that year, there were students that were having a tough time learning to read. And my eyes kind of opened up to everything that I knew and was trying wasn't really working. So there had to be something beyond that. So I started talking with my colleagues. Some had experience in dyslexia. Some had dyslexia in their family. And they kind of put me on this path and said, hey, why don't you try this training to be a certified academic language therapist? It might give you the tools that you're looking for in addition to all the other things you, uh, the knowledge that you have and that you're bringing to your classroom. So I did that training and it just opened up my eyes to all of this information that I wish I'd gotten before to help prepare me for teaching out in the real world. And I learned so much information and I just wanted to learn more. And then coincidentally through that time, both of my children ended up being diagnosed with dyslexia. My husband learned through my training and all of the information I was bringing home that he actually had dyslexia and it just really became this beautiful thing in our family where dyslexia is just abundant. <laughs> and that is the path that I decided to continue learning about. And when the opportunity become, to become an educational diagnostician came my way, I jumped at that chance because for me, that was that missing piece of what am I not understanding about kiddos to help work with them best? And it was through that training, that certification, um, that master's certification that I learned those pieces about how the brain is functioning and how that works with learning and, and those connections that really helped me be the best teacher and instructor when I was working with kids. And then I just continued to learn more about that and um, just continue to learn more and more every day about how the brain works and how that affects learners and how we can use evaluations to really help understand those pieces for our learners so that we can maximize the instruction that we're giving them instead of a lot of this trial and error, which we seem to to do a lot with students, but through evaluations, we can gain that information and we don't have to guess and we can move forward positively for kids. So that's really kind of how I got involved in that and where it's led me. But again, it was kind of accidental, but definitely meant to be. I, I, I love what I do and I'm so passionate about it. And I love that it helps my family and they love what I do and how it advocates for kiddos just like them. 
You know, it's so interesting how the people that I've spoken to over the years and Casey and I have interviewed all have a, a personal connection to mm -hmm. dyslexia in some way. A lot of times it's due to a family member wanting to help them. And it's just always so interesting to me when I hear these stories, how that comes into the conversations. So thank you so much for sharing that. The other thing that stood out to me that you mentioned was how we don't have to sort of resort to the trial and error mm -hmm. when we have and are equipped, I suppose, with the right reports and testing that reveals the information we need about how a child learns best. So that, what you just said about using trial and error really stood out to me that it doesn't have to be that way. Absolutely. And so thinking about that, Katie, and what kind of has led you on the path and, and brought you into looking at students and their work um, through the lens of testing, can you explain to us a little bit more about what is an educational diagnostician? Like, what is your role in that through that lens? Yes. So the role of an educational diagnostician is to take standardized tests that are normed, that are generally used in, in the population, take those tests, administer them to students, and analyze all of the information gained from that type of situation, in addition to lots of historical data about a student, parent information, teacher information, an abundance of, of information that you can get. I always say the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. Even though it's more information for me to look through, it's, it helps me understand the child and their history even more. And our job is to take all of that information and one, make a diagnosis if appropriate. That's definitely warranted within, within our profession, but also help the learner and the family of that learner understand the child's strengths and weaknesses, how they learn best, what might be harder for them or what might they excel at and how to utilize that information moving forward in their educational journey. I love that you brought that up and I've seen your reports and you do such a beautiful job of really helping parents and the students understand their unique learning profile. And I think that that is something that is incredibly beneficial to not only our students, but also their families and then also the people that work with them. So um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Katie, this next question that we have is something that we get asked a lot. And it's something that's just so commonly asked because there seems to be a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. And if people would like to go back to season one, episode 16, where we interviewed uh, dyslexia advocate Sabrina Axt, that is a great episode to sort of follow up on this conversation about diagnosing dyslexia. But Katie, if you could, from your educational diagnostician lens. Explain to us what qualifies as a clinical diagnosis of dyslexia. That is a great question and a very hot topic, it seems. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that really just all stems from there being this federal definition within school systems. And then at the state level, there being specific criteria and guidelines for meeting this definition within that setting so that services can or cannot be applied for students. But when we, we, when we take that away and we're looking at an overall child, 
we are really looking for this profile that fits the definition of what dyslexia is, you know, the one from uh, the International Dyslexia Association. And if there is an unexpected deficit in these underlying causes of dyslexia in rapid naming, phonological awareness, orthographic knowledge or processing, phonological memory, and it's paired with difficulties in word reading and fluency and, and sight word recognition, then that is indicative of a profile of a student who has dyslexia, whether it be more or less severe within that profile. And a lot of times we're looking for certain scores to say, oh, this is what meets that de definition. But a lot of times we look at at kiddos who are are twice exceptional and they mm -hmm. have scores that should be within the high above average range, but they have more of an average range profile in some of those areas. And that's unexpected for their profile. So it's really this overall unexpectedness that comes within those underlying causes that I mentioned and it matches with some of the difficulties that we're seeing in the classroom, um, those, some of those types of tasks and in helping determine. But there's a lot more that goes into it because it's not just about numbers either. It's about qualitative data. It's about the observations and the history and so much more that goes into it. So yes, clinical diagnosis, we are a lot of times looking at numbers. Do they fall within the average, above average, below average range? But holistically, we're talking about some unexpectedness within a child's profile within those certain areas that match up with the dyslexia definition. And for someone who may be new to hearing perhaps the definition of you know the working definition that we have right now from the IDA I've had for, for many years now, when you say unexpectedness, we, Casey, all three of us are very familiar with that and very familiar with the definition <laughs> of dyslexia given by the IDA, but just sort of explain unexpectedness maybe to like someone who may be a family member or a caregiver that may not know what that means. That That's a great point, Emily. So unexpectedness is that there are other parts of that learner's profile that are intact. They are moving at a an accurate or appropriate progressive path but these areas specific to dyslexia, whether it be word reading, fluency, spelling, even some other language type tasks are not progressing at that same rate. So there is this unexpectedness. We'll hear a lot, oh, they can do math so well, but with their letters, they just don't understand it. That's very unexpected because we would expect that growth to be synonymous among all, amongst all of their, their tasks and areas. Um, but it's not also just with math, because sometimes math can be an area of deficit for students with dyslexia, too. So we can't just compare it to that. Sometimes right. there may be strengths in language. So a student can speak very eloquently, use great vocabulary. But then when they're reading, it doesn't transfer and they don't have that same level of knowledge when it comes to that aspect. And so there's a disconnect and it's unexpected. It could also be within their cognitive profile, kind of as I mentioned earlier, if they're a twice exceptional kiddo and they have some areas of processing that are super high within their profile, then even though their reading may seem average compared to peers their age, it's still unexpected within their profile because it should be in that high above average range. So unexpectedness can show up in a few different ways within a learner's profile. Yeah. And I think for classroom teachers, I think that unexpectedness can really sort of 
put you through a loop when you're trying to piece together all the things that this child is doing. And yet this child is presenting, you know, they're maybe looking good on paper, according to maybe some of the assessments that a classroom teacher would get, but yet things, but they're still not making maybe effective progress in a lot of areas. And that's where I think, you know, you have families come in for a conference and you may hear a classroom teacher say, yeah, well, they're looking great. And, and here's the, here's their classroom assessment. And yet there is this unexpectedness and that's where we want, I think, there to be this urgency to dig more deeply and look and get to the heart of what's going on. Yeah. I also think that the unexpectedness is what sometimes trips people up into thinking that students need to either try harder. I think that is kind of that perpetual, that's what it is. That's sort of perpetuating that myth of thinking that, oh, well, they're obviously very bright. So they, they just need to try harder here. You just need to have them read more at home. And so I think you know, we have to be very mindful of understanding that unexpected piece in connection to dyslexia so that we can provide the appropriate information to parents and seek testing when, when needed. Um, because Mm -hmm. I think that that, that's that unexpected piece that trips people up. And so Katie, if we're thinking about that, another conversation that often happens is some misunderstandings or need for clarification as to who can actually do the testing for a clinical diagnosis versus like school-based diagnosis. And then what are those tests that are used to have that assessment for a full evaluation of dyslexia? Yes. So for those formal diagnoses, you are really looking at licensed psychologists, educational diagnosticians, neuropsychologists, and then there are some speech language pathologists who are trained to administer and make that analysis and diagnosis when appropriate. And so those are really those those clinical-based professionals who can make those diagnoses that are more formal outside of the educational environment. And there are lots of tests out there that can be used. And some of the main ones are the Woodcock-Johnson test. They make a lot of different tests that test different domains in different areas. The Wexler has, there's lots of different tests in that as well. The Kaufman test you might hear. And while all those tests are great, I think it comes down to more of, well, is that test going to test what I need to for this specific kiddo when we're looking at dyslexia? And sometimes, you know, I'll end up pulling from another test because I know that certain subtest from that instrument is really great at helping give me that information, both qualitatively and quantitatively to help in my understanding of the student. So that becomes more of the important piece, I think, from a diagnostician's perspective is, you know, what tools are going to give me that information that I need for this specific referral of diagnosis that we're looking for. One of the other pieces to point out in professionals that do diagnoses is uh, some are required, diagnosticians are required to have time in the classroom. So you have to have been a a classroom teacher for at least three years um, in many cases to get that certification. And we are limited to really looking at specific learning disabilities where we're not looking at some of those other internalizing disorders or like autism. That's not really our wheelhouse for diagnoses. We are well-breathed in it and able to understand those characteristics and symptoms and, and intervention applica- implications. 
but really we are honed in on those learning disabilities and the impact within a classroom for a student. And, and that's really our lens versus psychologists who have a more of a broader lens, who also have some of that knowledge, but don't have to have been in a classroom, but have a lot of great knowledge about autism and some anxiety and depression and other behavioral disorders that might show up within a child's profile. Excellent. That's, yeah. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. Just once again, just reiterating that we're looking at the whole child mm-hmm. when we are seeking a full ev- evaluation. And I think it's helpful to sort of name some of those assessments that parents may not know which ones that that diagnostician or, or any evaluator may be using. So we just want to switch gears just for a few minutes. So I wanted to try and have the listeners be able to sort of make an image in their mind of what it's like to be in your shoes. So I was sort of curious and sort of pretending to be a fly on the wall when you are in the testing setting, when you first meet with a child. Uh, what are some things that you like to look for or things may, you may notice when we're first beginning the process of evaluation? Help us sort of give us a, a little bit of a, a window. Yes, that's that's always the first impression. That's always a really big part of the testing session. And and you never know because the parents, you know, being asked to drop their kid off for a certain period, of extended period of time where they can't be in the room with the child. And so you never know how the child is going to react in, in terms of that. So really the first thing is trying to build some rapport. And I'm really looking for, is the child willing to come into the office and find their area that we're going to be working in and, and take a look, or are they, you know, a li- more hesitant because that's kind of good knowledge too, because it helps me understand how I might proceed with some of the subtests that we're going to do and okay. in that process. And then I'll look for language and interaction with communication. Once we do get settled into the room, I'll ask them about any siblings they may have or pets that they may have, even though I'm already privy to that information from the input forms and interviews that I've done with parents it's still good to just get that. And then I'll share a picture of my dog or cat if they seem super interested. And that usually breaks the ice right there because my dog is kind of a cutie. (laughs) And then kind of just from there, I'll explain to them what the process is. I'll kind of ask them, you know, do you know why you're here today? You know, kind of get from their perspective why they feel they're there. And depending on the kiddo's age, you know, what's most appropriate. And then I'll talk with them about, you know, today, this is all about you. We're on your schedule. Um, When you need a break, we're going to take a break. If you need to have a snack, we're going to take a snack. If you have questions about anything, I want you to ask me any questions. And some of the things we do today are going to be super easy. Some of them are going to be really hard and that's, that's actually on purpose. And I'll try to get them to understand that I'm looking for how they're working through things and that I might ask them questions about how they were thinking through a certain process or sounding out a word. And really through that conversation, I'll get a lot of feedback from them about how comfortable they feel. And then that just really sets the tone and the mood for moving forward. Because my goal really as a diagnostician is to get the most accurate information from the child. And if they're not feeling comfortable, then I'm not going to get the most accurate information. And then I'll purposely choose 
subtest in a certain order if I know that that might help acclimate the child better. If they're very resistant to writing, I'm not going to whip out spelling, you know, on that first subtest and be like, all right, let's do some writing. <laughs> you know, we're going to do some other things that involve some of their strengths that the parents might have mentioned um, before and to help just really get into that mindset and and allow them to feel comfortable. And so that's really kind of how we start off and then really how that that really dictates how it continues to move forward for that child's session. Katie, I think that's such an important explanation of you know how you enter the evaluation setting with the child. It just I think it helps family members to really understand for your stance and how you are developing rapport with the child. And it really, I'm feeling a strong connection and I'm sure Casey is as well, mm -hmm. because I think those things that you're explaining are very important to us in the intervention setting. When we first begin with a child and going forward and helping them feel like they can exhibit their strengths and feel a certain comfort level and have, feel safe to ask questions and talk things through and things like that. So I think that was, that was great. And I could really sort of picture you with the child when you were explaining that. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it just highlights the fact that you're really honoring the child that's in front of you and, and helping them on this journey. So um, yeah. I've seen Katie in action and she's amazing. So I, <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> what she does. <laughs> and so you know, if we're thinking about those reports and I, I've seen all different kinds of reports from, you know, those that are really in depth and provide a lot of information to those that I could have benefited from some more information to help me. But when we're looking at a report, what, what do you feel are some key points that we should be looking for um, through the lens of an educator? So as an educator, we need to dig a little bit deeper, I think, sometimes. And, and I say this from my own experience as an educator and just hearing, oh, this child has dyslexia or oh, this child has this, you know, diagnosis and really understand, well, why? What, what was the justification for that diagnosis? Because as we know, in dyslexia, there are, there are many different ways, those underlying causes that can be impacted to, to understand why that child may be uh, struggling. And so if the child's struggle is in rapid naming, then you might want to address how you're working with them one way versus if they have a really primary deficit in phonological awareness in that area of phonological processing, you might address that in a different way or use some different resources as you're working with the child. And so as educators, we, we need to just look beyond just that, that label that's given for a kiddo and understand where those specific deficits are, because that's going to tell us you know, how we need, we can be proactive in planning for that kiddo to really make it most meaningful for them and, and group them most meaningfully if we need to with other kiddos in the classroom that exhibit some of those same core deficits. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you mentioned that, right? Looking beyond that label, because I think sometimes, you know, as educators and parents, that's kind of the first thing we go to, right? Turn to that last page and see, okay, do we qualify? But really using the information, the wealth of information that is in those reports to help plan and, and really provide appropriate instruction. So I think that that's such a key piece. I'm glad that you brought that up. I have another big question. Casey <laughs> and I were discussing, I know, oh boy, I get the big ones. 
So this is something that Casey was mentioning earlier that there seems to be coming up a lot in conversations. And Casey, feel free to hop in mm -hmm. on this one. But from your standpoint, should we be looking at age-based norms or grade-based norms when we look at these testing reports? So what really, in essence, is the most important piece that we should be looking at? And then, and sort of a two-part question, how can we use those reports to help get our students get the services they need and really looking and addressing the needs of the whole child, looking at the child profile, all of that. So that was sort of a two-part question. <laughs> and yes. the big one. <laughs> okay. So for part one, age-based norms versus grade-based norms. And, you know, I have seen a lot more kind of variance in the usage of those norms um, out there. In my professional opinion, we should be using age-based norms as much as possible because that is really helping us understand that comparativeness to other peers that age and what the expectedness is of that age, you know, kind of where their ranking is in that way. Where I think that grade-based norms can be helpful at times is when we look specifically at achievement areas, when we're looking at reading, writing, mathematical development. And that is really because sometimes if a child has not been exposed to some of those concepts or skills, then it's not realistic to expect that they should perform well on those skills within a testing setting, even though their peers may have been exposed to that. And an example of that is a child who's been held back or retained. And so they're in second grade, but really they would be in third grade with their peers, but in third grade, they're exposed to different skills, but this child hasn't had that opportunity. So maybe those grade-based norms for second grade are more appropriate in, in that way. There can be some argumentation for that. Um, but when we're talking about those cognitive processes and the development of memory and retrieval and uh, crystallized knowledge, those are those are really more appropriate to, to be age-based because that is natural development, regardless of the setting that you're in with, with the skills that you're learning specifically. As for part two, using the information from reports to get services and really address the whole child. Again, that kind of just depends on, you know, whatever state you're in. Um, and, and then again, the federal guidelines and criteria that need to be met for that. But again, it's it's kind of, again, looking beyond just those numbers sometimes when, again, we're looking at that whole child. I strongly believe that qualitative data is just as important as quantitative data. And I was doing a training recently and we were talking about, okay, so we get a score of a 90 on this subtest and 90 is considered the average range, right? But if this is a word reading task and student one to read these five words, it takes them, you know, 45 seconds sounding out each word, but at the end they get the word right. So they get their five points. Right. And then I have my other student who comes in, they're like, bam, 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 five, just like that. And then they both get a score of 90, but that's not indicative of the struggle that this child went through to read those words. And so the qualitative data becomes even more important mm -hmm. in that, yeah, they'll get that word right, but think about how long it's going to take them to get it right. So even yes. though they have this score in the average range, is that really 
truly representative of that skill level and what we should be thinking. So for me, qualitative data is huge. And a lot of times that's that's the part that's missing on reports, but that's the part that can be super valuable for educators and parents because it's looking beyond a number. A number doesn't always mean much to anybody other than average or not average, but it's those qualitative pieces that really allow us to hone in on, on helping the, that kiddo and understanding them even more so that we can provide services um, for them when it's warranted. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think from the lens of a therapist, you know, or a tutor practitioner, when I have a client that is seeking a clinical diagnosis or, or profession, you know, the educational assessments, I will write up a report about what I've done, including if I have taught X amount of minutes of phonemic awareness tasks or things like that, because I want that information to hopefully be not necessarily included, but at least thought about when, when looking at those numbers, because sometimes it's, you know, as Katie's saying that that qualitative information is really important and it, and it can impact what those scores actually look like in the child versus just on paper. Right. I mean, Katie had a perfect example right there of two students perhaps getting the same score and yet without that qualitative input, mm -hmm. they both look the same when in fact they both present very differently. And so that just highlights, yes, absolutely that you had said, Katie, qualitative is just as important as the quantitative. So especially for people with dyslexia, because mm -hmm. you are going to see someone, you know, hesitating and working through when they're reading, you know, maybe in a word reading task, things like that. They may be accurate, but they may be hesitant for a variety of other factors. Right. So that, that, that was, that was great. Well, okay. I wanted to tag on to what you were saying, Casey, about, you know, when you work with a student, how you try to provide information mm -hmm. for, you know, the evaluation process for that family. And that's actually a really important part of understanding the child as well, because if a child has had intervention in the past, and then you're doing an evaluation on them, you can expect that if they've had good intervention, that some of their scores will have come up, which is what we want to see. But on the flip side, if the diagnostician or psychologist doesn't know that the child has had that type of intervention, again, through that lens, holistically, they don't necessarily maybe know why that score might be higher than we would have expected within the whole understanding of that child. So always, always, always provide that information as educators and therapists, you know, to those families so that they can take that with them. Cause that is a huge part of helping understand um, that child's growth and or lack of growth too, if that's what we're finding as well. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that kind of harks back to when Emily and I talk about in our lesson plans, we always have a little side part, at least I do where I have a little side part for notes. And so when I'm asked to write a report, or if I have a student that is going to go in for either testing through the school or testing with in a private setting, I always, you know, pull out all of those, those notes from our lessons. And I will write down the areas that I saw as strengths, the areas that I saw as, as we we're making gains or we're struggling. And I add, I basically write up like a, a full report for, to have that submitted as well, because I do think that that is important when we have students who have, you know, closed the gap and then they, or they show up as just below average or, or maybe low average in an, in phonemic awareness, but yet we've been 
they've been in interventions with, with me as a therapist for the last six months. Yes. I hope that they are showing up as, as performing better, but they still have some of these other discrepancies. So I think all of that information is important. So for us as educators and, and therapists and tutors and diet practitioners to, to be really mindful of our role in providing that qualitative data. Right. Absolutely. Casey, just assessing a child the other day and just noting areas of hesitancy, you know, any kind of prompting on my part that is revealing. So, but just making those careful notes like that, I think just helps us to look at the whole picture once again, not just those numbers. So yeah, great point there. So Katie, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit because when we're looking at testing, I know a lot of times, and this makes sense, but a lot of times we're looking at the areas of need, right? Which is why our students have been tagged for looking at an educational evaluation because they're struggling in some form. But while, while those assessments can really identify those areas of need, what is it that you feel that, that testing can reveal about a child's strength? So yes, uh, we always do tend to focus on the needs part, but the strengths are very important as well. And you can find out a lot about a child's strengths by looking at those different processes and how their brain is working and how that matches again to their achievement. Because again, when, when we're thinking about diagnosing, we're looking for this unexpectedness, right? In certain areas, but that doesn't mean that all areas are affected. And so we tend to see these strengths pop up in other, other areas. And that really gives some insight into why a child may choose some of the hobbies that they choose outside of, you know, the academic setting or why they're interested in certain tasks. A lot of times I'll see a student has great visual spatial thinking skills through there. And I'll, I'll note that to the parents and they'll be like, oh, they love to do Legos. And I'll be like, well, bingo, this makes sense. It's a strength for them, right? You know, future architect here. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be really exciting too in this process of even if a child has a diagnosis of dyslexia or there's dyscalculia there or some other learning disabilities or differences, touching on the strengths really helps helps everyone understand that dyslexia is a learning difference. It's not a thinking disability. It's like, it's not, your child is not going to not be able to think moving forward. The prognosis is not this, you know, horrible, tragic thing. It's, we're just going to navigate this a little bit differently. And we're going to understand these wonderful traits and strengths that your child has um, because we're going to help utilize those to help move them forward from those things that are not, not going as well. They're a little bit, you know, impacted and helping them tap into their strengths will just continue to help motivate them to continue to move forward as well. It's just like finding those, that balance of extracurricular activities with kiddos who are always an in intervention. You know, you don't want them to give up basketball because they have to go after school for intervention every day. It's about finding that balance of letting them have that, their strengths play within their strengths, but also work on their weaknesses. And I think that looking at their profile allows us to do that even more and pinpoint that and have those conversations with parents, um, which is kind of cool, you know, to, to see and understand about your kiddo. Yeah. I love that. And, and I've even had students who were made aware of their strengths and that, that let them kind of separate out the areas that dyslexia was impacting that were a struggle and made that just a smaller part because they they felt seen in these areas that that were strengths and i think that is that builds confidence and can also really help patch up some of that 
self-esteem that perhaps has been whittled away with those struggles. So I think highlighting those strengths and, and having students understand their strengths, but also the families understand that can take away some of the, the fear or unknown aspects of those struggles that dyslexia can bring. Yeah. And I would love to see those strengths really have a special focus and highlight and communicated to children in order to help them build and grow their self-advocacy skills. Yes. So when they know better about how they learn, they're able to communicate that to others. So, and exactly what, what Casey was saying, but just knowing and, and finding areas where they can showcase how they learn, I think it's just, yeah, once again, only going to boost their self-esteem, which as we all know, can be impacted negatively for sure. All right. So Katie, how can we, so we're going to use all this info, all this wonderful information that you've provided through your evaluations. So how can we use that to provide appropriate interventions? So when we're thinking about the intervention piece that also honors their strengths. So if we know that this child is exhibiting these areas of strength, how can we sort of mold that into what they'll need in the intervention setting? I think that taking a look at those strengths and how they impact learning also helps the interventionist understand how they can work with that child best. And I mean that by if a student has very strong fluid reasoning, that means they have good problem solving skills. They're likely going to make connections a bit faster than a student who doesn't have strengths in that area. And so thinking about intervention wise, this is a student who may be able to move at a faster pace because that's more appropriate for them. They're making those connections faster versus a student who wouldn't have a strength in that area. And so that that's just one example of how we take that strength and we utilize that information to help with the intervention piece and build those areas. But any of those different processes that are involved in learning, if they are strengths, we can utilize that to help understand how intervention could look. Just in the same way that if those areas are deficits, that will also impact how we can intervene and support that child and what it can look like. And so we could have a whole podcast about each of those different areas and all how the impacts that they have. But, but generally, I, it's important to think about that information um, because it helps you understand where the child is coming from, why, what knowledge they already have and they're bringing to the table and how you can move them forward from where they're at. Instead of, again, just thinking, oh, they have dyslexia. This is what I'm going to do because this is what I do for all kiddos who have dyslexia. You, we have to look beyond that for these kiddos and honor their individualized profiles and those strengths that they bring especially honoring that, like we were just talking about, because that helps their self-esteem when we honor that instead of baby it in some ways, which sometimes happens for our kiddos. Um, and that just kind of perpetuates the I'm dumb feeling that they might have within them that we really don't want them to have. Yeah. Right. And, and it just emphasizes the need once again for prescriptive and diagnostic <laughs> lesson planning. And that is one of the 
main points of Orton-Gillingham intervention to be prescriptive and diagnostic. And we can be when we know where a student is coming from. Casey's nodding her head like, yeah, that's all good. I, right. I was getting ready to say the exact same thing, Emily. Yes. Yeah, so you stole the words right out of my mouth. I love it. That's perfect. Yeah. That prescriptive See, and diagnostic there. piece is key. We are on the same page. I love it. <laughs> okay. So Katie, if we're kind of thinking about families, what advice would you give to families that are seeking testing for their child? I mean, there's a lot to think about, right? This is your yeah. baby. A lot of times when you're trying to find out information, it's it, there's this emotional piece, right? And so I think number one, when you try to contact somebody, you know, right away when you're talking to them, if, if that, that spark is there, right. As moms, we, we kind of ha have that instinct, but you want to talk to somebody and find somebody that you feel has the knowledge that you're looking for asking them, you know, about their experiences. If you're looking for dyslexia, you know, what experiences do you have with dyslexia? Do you have any other certifications? And also what areas are you thinking about testing? for my kiddo? Is it truly a full evaluation? I hate to say it, but there are so many times that families find organizations that offer testing, but really it's not really a full evaluation that they're offering, but that's what parents think that they're getting. So making sure it's being done by a credentialed person that we've mentioned earlier, a diagnostician or a psychologist or neuropsychologist. And then you know, one thing that I'm a little bit particular about is, you know, how much qualitative data do you provide? <laughs> and because to me, I think that's super important, right? And, and that can really be a missing element of some reports. So, you know, do you give a lot of qualitative data when you're writing your reports to help, you know, me and the team that's working with my child, you know, uh, to help them make a plan that's going to be best? And... I think just making sure it's comprehensive and that the person has an understanding of dyslexia. That's when I find families that come to me, they have usually done prior testing through some type of organization and they still feel like they don't have the answers that they have within the dyslexia realm. Mm -hmm. And when I'll test them and evaluate them, I'll find, okay, well, this is why the dyslexia is presenting the way that it is. Even if somebody else before didn't catch it, it's because there wasn't that in-depth knowledge of dyslexia. And I feel very fortunate to have gone in that path and have that really in-depth knowledge of dyslexia and be a diagnostician because it allows me to overlap both worlds. And I understand how dyslexia can manifest in a really in-depth way that really helps parents understand their child. So many times the parents will be like, you are describing exactly what I see at home. That makes so much sense. Thank you. You know, I didn't understand that before. So I think the more knowledge somebody has in dyslexia, the better they are in understanding how they can look at that profile because it can be complex and how it manifests within that certain child's profile with those strengths and weaknesses that we've been talking about. And I, I like your advice on, you know, thinking about t trusting our, our parent gut or our mommy gut, right. About the person that you're talking to, because one thing that I notice is how you speak to parents in terms of really explaining it to them in a way that they can understand so that when they have that report, they fully have an understanding of their child's as a, as a learner, they have a understanding of their child's learning profile. And I think that that's important too. I've, I've sometimes had parents come and they've gotten a report and they've read through it, but it's it makes very little sense because it's just so heavy in clinical 
vocabulary and things like that. And, and they felt like they weren't, that it wasn't necessarily broken down. So sometimes having someone that can help them make sense of what the report's actually saying is beneficial too. So, you know, when you were saying advice for parents is to, to have someone that they feel comfortable with, that they, that they feel can explain those reports in a way that makes sense to them, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. Casey. Yeah. I've, I've seen families come to me after two. I, I've had, you know, one mom, more than one come to me after they've gotten the full report back and in tears because mm-hmm. they don't quite understand. They know what they wanted to seek, but when they read it, they just, they're so confused. And so I think just looking at the human side of what you're presenting to a caregiver is just so, so important for sure. So we talked about advice for families, but let's hop into, so for educators, what advice do you have for educators when using this information from the report? So going forward, they have the reports in front of them and they're, they're reading them over. What advice do you have for them? I think as we had mentioned earlier, it's it's just about digging a little bit deeper and understanding that child and what they're bringing to the table to help the educator know, again, be proactive on how they're going to work with that kiddo best and how they're going to group them with other kiddos. And kind of, you know, one of the things I think of is, you know, understanding or what having those expectations for the outcomes for that child. If there's really a severe deficit in like short-term memory, for example, then expecting the student to master spelling, you know, in just two or three weeks of working on a certain skill may not be appropriate or realistic. So I think using that information also helps us as educators have realistic outcomes um, for our students and those realistic discussions with the team and with families as well on what to expect as the child's moving forward in their journey, whether that's with strengths or deficits. So digging a little bit deeper is really that that general, like, just dig a little deeper <laughs> and get some more information right. about that kiddo because it'll only benefit you as the educator in the long run. Um, and then just also, you know, of course, maximize it for the student, which is what we're all here for. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I would mm-hmm. add that educators, if they, they're looking at a report and they have a question, go back and, and, and ask, ask questions. I don't think that a lot of classroom teachers feel like they may be in that position, but they may want to, um, they, you know, and not know what the right answer or the next step should be. I agree with that, Emily. And I, and I, from, from both roles, cause I was a classroom mm-hmm. teacher and a, a diagnostician. And I think right. that in our classroom teacher role, we do sometimes either, we don't have the time most of the time, right. Or, don't feel comfortable on how to address it because we don't know all that language. But I do know from the educational diagnostician side that we're always open to answer questions. And, you know, we've got to meet in the middle somehow because it's all in what's best for the kiddos. So I love that you're saying, you know, go reach out to the people on your campus or the people who have done the testing to get those answers of how can I be better, you know, to work with this kiddo? How can I help them be more successful? Right. And I will piggyback and say, I think, you know, at least when I was in the public school setting, oftentimes we were just handed the 504 or the IEP plan and not Mm -hmm. the actual 
educational report, which holds a lot of really important information it does. that we should be accessing. And so I think, you know, if schools could provide time, not outside of the workday, but time during the workday mm-hmm. for teams of teachers to kind of come together and, and really look at those reports, that that would benefit our children as well. Because I know you, if you're just looking at the accommodation sheet, well, then it just becomes this checklist and you don't really have the understanding of why those things are in place or how those things, you know, coming back to your expectations for outcomes, what is needed? Are there perhaps some stepping stones that are needed to get to those ultimate outcome goals that we're looking for? So I think there's a lot of information that is provided in those reports and they are lengthy. And so I don't think teachers should be expected to look at them outside of workday hours, but I think it should be part of time that's set aside by by administration for them to do so. Absolutely. Well, Miss Katie, you answered a ton of questions for us. <laughs> I hope that everyone found this really beneficial. I know I every time I talk to Katie, I learn something new. She's a wealth of knowledge. Um, so Katie, do you have any book recommendations or ways for our listeners to get a hold of you that you'd like to share with us? Yes. So you can find me at bassereducationservices.com if you want to look me up online. I do not really have a social media presence. I just can't handle all of that, <laughs> but I'm kind of here and there. You can also find me through the Wimberley Dyslexia and Learning Center, uh, facilitating the dyslexia therapist training. We actually have a cohort starting this summer. If you're interested, check it out. <laughs> and I'm actually really excited to read The Dyslexic Advantage. Those of you who may not know, they just came out with an updated edition and I just got it in the mail a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm looking forward to cracking that open and learning more, which kind of touches on a lot of those strengths that we see in our population of those who have dyslexia. So kind of matches and um, getting to learn more is always exciting to me. So yeah, I'm excited to read that one too. I love how they always look at kind of that, the familiar linkages in, in both the strengths and, and needs um, through their work. So I'm excited to dig into that book as well. Yeah. You know, I just found out that this book was updated. So now I'm like adds to cart <laughs> and uh, these authors also have a wonderful newsletter that they mm-hmm. put out that has so many, so many good articles in it. So if you don't subscribe to their email newsletter, I believe it's a yearly fee, but um, definitely worth it as a little business expense or however you want to frame that, but definitely going to pick that book up. Yes. And uh, we Katie, will link uh, Katie's, um, oh, yeah, her website to, and her email information to our uh, show notes. So you can find Vassar Education Services information in the show notes. Yes. And so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have exciting episodes coming up to, to we're getting sort of close-ish to wrapping up season two of Together in Literacy podcast, but we've still got more to go and we're excited to share those things with you. We've got another interview coming up uh, in a few more episodes. So definitely be sure to listen to that. Um, Please, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast so you can get notifications when a new episode comes out, uh, be sure to do that. 
Uh, would love to hear from you. Really appreciate your ratings and reviews. And uh, we'll see you next time. Right. And if you and if you have got any uh, Together in Literacy merchandise, the t-shirts, make sure you tag <gasps> us on social media. I've seen lots of people tagging me, which is really exciting. So yes. Oh my goodness, Casey. Thank you so much. Before I say goodbye. Yes, absolutely. We would love for you to check out the Together in Literacy merchandise. Thank you so much, everyone. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.